right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to the Cambridge Science Festival. Uh, tonight's speaker is lecturer in bio-nanotechnology, working on light-triggered chemical reactions and devices, hybrid materials for tissue engineering, and nanomaterial modifications. So if you please give a warm Cambridge welcome to Liliana Fulk. Thank you. Let me just check if this is working. I put this warning sign here because a friend of mine asked me, Liliana, I would like to come to your talk, but if you're showing these molecules, I don't know anything about chemistry. So I will just feel really strange. And uh, yes, I told him you should come. He still didn't come. Uh, because chemistry, yes, I'm going to show you some molecules, but you can talk about chemistry in different ways. And I hope I will show you today as well how in molecular science, there is also, there were so many things that didn't make sense, and then they turned into some molecules that we actually use today, and we learned through exploring them about the world around us, about ourselves, we design new drugs. And I will start with my personal story, and this is, I thought I'm re I was really clever when I, said uh, when I said the title of my talk is going to be six words that change molecular science, that doesn't make any sense. And then I was reading uh, uh, an article and there was this, the most exciting phrase in science is not Eureka, but that's funny. And this was actually Isaac Asimov that already said it. So, you know, this doesn't make any sense. It's funny was already said uh, before me. Isaac Asimov was a science fiction writer and also my personal inspiration for getting into science, one of the personal inspirations. So I'll tell you why I'm starting with this in a few minutes. Hopefully it's going to make sense. So I am from a sm very small town in Croatia. And as a kid, I spent lots of time walking around the forest and collecting fossils. It was really common for us kids just to go wander around and come with a bag full of fossils. Because in Krasina, in that part of Northern Croatia in 19th century, it, they found it's uh, 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 lots of specimens of Neanderthal. And actually after the Neanderthal in Germany is the second largest place where they found this very old uh, uh, homo species, homo neanderthalsis. Actually it was called homo stupidis uh, at the beginning by Ernst Haeckel. And uh, this finding in Krasina, people have lived there 130,000 years ago and there were 80 specimens. So, you know, as kids, we were already exposed to all this beauty and mysteries and things that didn't make sense. And I'm putting this here because in February 2018, in Spain, the scientists revealed, they found it before, but it was published in February this year, they revealed that they found a cave with these drawings. And this is really, <laughs> this amazes me. I have it now in my office. And what is interesting, it was 64,000 years old, which means that it needs to be drawn by Neanderthals. And before we believed that Neanderthal didn't have capabilities to be artists or to use tools beyond the basic tools that the uh, uh, homo species will use. So this is really interesting. And it didn't make very much sense at the beginning. So the scientists were working uh, very hard on this. The funny thing for me, of course, being a chemist, this was interesting for me, but the second question I asked myself after I was in awe of this art, I was thinking, what did they use to draw this? I want to know what kind of chemical structure, what kind of paint did they use to draw this? This is the chemist talking. So this is red ochre. It's composed of clay, of some sand, and it has some iron oxide as well, hematite it's called. Um, and it gives it this wonderful ochre uh, color. So humans have, used it, have been using it for 300,000 years to make different kinds of uh, uh, um, uh, drawings or, or effects. But origin was explained only 40 years ago. So geologists actually explained how red ochre is formed in nature only 40 years ago. So, you know, we are still discovering so many things. And it came to my mind that there is a certain connection between this red ochre and my work right now, because we are working on something else, which also has my, uh, iron oxide. And this is 
magnetic nanoparticles. So, you know, before Neanderthals have used these magnetic particles to, to paint and to draw, and we are using these magnetic nanoparticles today to develop new strategies for the rocks and treatments and diagnostics. And in fact, these magnetic nanoparticles that contain the similar oxide to the ochre, red ochre, is the most view, widely used nanomaterial. So it has passed the clinical trials as well. So there is a really a wonderful connection, uh, a little bit of a poetic connection between the Neanderthal, the findings in Krapina, and the work that we are doing here. But let me tell you, this is just the introduction to one of the events that changed a little bit the life that we have. And this is the discovery of the first synthetic dye. So red ochre, of course, it's a natural mineral that you can find particularly in Spain and south of France, you can find it in a large quantity. But actually synthetic dyes were made, the first synthetic dye was made in 19th century. And it didn't make sense at all how it came to life. So there was this guy that was exploring coal tar. So in 19th century, coal tar was this mushy, terrible product uh, uh, during the production of some coal gas for burning from coal. So it was a waste product, basically. And there was this guy, Van Hoffman, who was a famous chemist at that time. And we knew that in coal tar, there are some molecules that have similar structures to the molecules of aspirin, for example. So he thought, can we take this coal tar and maybe turn it into something useful? Maybe we can make quinine, because quinine was then recognized already as the most efficient drug for malaria. So he said, can we just take this rubbish and make the quinine out of it? He didn't do it himself. He put one of his students to do this. And he was 18 years old, so he was very eager to prove himself, and he started working with coal tar. He didn't know that it's a terrible thing to work with. It's mushy, it's oily, it sticks everywhere. So he put all kinds of chemicals onto it, and he just couldn't get the quinine, or he couldn't get anything useful out of it. And then the story says that he was so desperate that he just decided to leave it in the lab and just throw some rubbish on it. So he's just going to leave it, and then he will say to Van Hoffman, this doesn't make any sense, why are you making me do this? And he put certain compounds onto this mixture of tar, and it turned purple. And so this beautiful, pur persistent purple. And he thought, okay, so that's funny, and it's interesting, and oh, maybe there is something. But it wasn't a drug, it wasn't a quinine, it wasn't something useful, apart that it was this beautiful cover. The guy was William Perkin, and he has made the first synthetic dye. And you have to remember that by that time, purple was so difficult to prepare. You needed to use uh, uh, small snails that had a purple shell. So it was very expensive, and so only the richest people could afford to wear purple. And then when he made this dye, it was really affordable. And he, of course, discovered then some other dyes that were based on this molecular structure. So this was the first synthetic dye, and then there were many that followed. And these dyes have really transformed not only the industry, not only the fashion, but they also changed the way how we actually explore the living cells. Because some of the dyes which are based on this structure have been then used towards the end of uh, 19th century to dye neurons, which are brain cells, or to dye other cells. And they actually help decipher some of the physiology of the cell as well. So it made a huge impact. And if you think that these kind of things are now done, that we are not discovering any in anything else in the dye world, you are wrong. Because in 2009, purely by chance, Matt Subramanian in Oregon State University, he, was, he just wanted to make some new materials for electronics. So there are some inorganic materials which are made of metals, which people want to make to be very conductive at a certain temperatures and use it for electronic uh, devices. 
And so he said to one of his students, it seems that it's very good to have some of the students, young students, just mix these things together and put them in the oven because they were working already two years on this material and nothing useful came out. So they put these materials in the oven, they heated it. This was some exotic metals like yttrium and indium, and there was a little bit of manganese oxide, and they heated up to 1,200 degrees because this is the usual procedure that you will use for these metals. And it was really interesting what they got. It was really vibrantly blue color. And blue is not necessarily very easy to make, and I'll tell you why. And this blue color is actually composed of this metal and, and manganese oxide. They form different crystal structures that really then reflect this blue light. And they call it very scientifically uh, Y in MN blue, but then they call it Oregon blue. And if somebody paints in the audience, you will know that this Oregon blue, actually you can buy it, and it was put on the market in 2015. Uh, really, like in every single shop. But what is really interesting about this paint, and that's why we believe this paint is going to be useful also for some application in architecture, is that it reflects the heat. So you could basically paint the houses, or maybe even paint the cars, and they will reflect the heat, particularly if you are in a tropical country, <laughs> this could be very useful. So in the meanwhile, they have developed the methodologies where they can make this in the uh, uh, big amounts. So, you know, this is also one of the things that didn't make really sense and you didn't really expect it to happen, but then it turned out into something really, really interesting. And as I told you, this blue color is particularly funky. So the chemists were always puzzled and also biologists. Think a little bit how many things you can name that really have blue color in nature. Can you think of one? Plum. Yes, but it's not really blue. There is one, yes, there is a primrose, very good. <laughs> Can you name any animal that is blue, that will have a blue skin? Maybe avatars, you know, like the, the, the creatures from Avatar, but they are fictional. But I can tell you that blue color is a very rare color in nature compared to all other. Um, so Robert Hooke already and Isaac Newton, and I put Robert Hooke first, because he, was in, he, he really had a huge conflict, uh, conflict with Newton. And lots of Hooke's career went downhill because Isaac Newton didn't like him. So I always, in every lecture, I put Hooke first. Um, so Robert Hooke already in 17th century, he was fascinated by peacocks and the blue color of the peacocks. So he was, he was using his primitive microscope at that time and he was looking at this reflection of a blue light and said, this is really a magic appearance. And then Newton also started thinking about this blue color and he wrote about it a little bit, but it didn't go any deeper. And it didn't go deeper because they didn't have tools to actually look at what is the reason for this blue color. So you will recognize that there, is, there are some birds like this jay that have blue feathers. There are also butterflies, and I took this as an emoji. This butterfly is actually an emoji. <laughs> it's so popular and beautiful. Um, and these butterflies and birds, they actually don't have any dyes in them. So they don't have any chemical molecules as the one that William Perkin made. They don't have any pigments, but their color comes, stems from the structure within their wings. So these structures are made of their own proteins or some sugars that animals or insects can make. And structures are so fine and they are so nicely structured on a nanometer scale. And this is a very, very small scale that they can reflect only blue color and all other colors are absorbed. And this is really something really, really stunning and it was only possible to see this once when you really had advanced microscopes. So this is, for example, the scale when you would go really deeper down the scale of the butterfly wing, which is on the left side, you would see that it has structures that looks almost like a Christmas tree. And this structure can be mimicked. So chemists have found a way to make these Christmas trees now with the new materials. 
And so they can make something that we call structural colors. So not all colors stem from pigments. And so I, since I started talking about nanotechnology already, I mean, so early in the talk, maybe I should really <laughs> try to explain to some of you that might not know how small is a nanometer, uh, um, how small is it really? I try to illustrate it, it's never so easy. I think I don't even know how small it is and I work with it, <laughs> you know? So if we take one meter, let's say it's like this, and then we divide it, for example, into 100 pieces, this one meter, we will get the size of a ladybug. If we divide this one meter into 1,000 pieces, we will get the size of a grain of sand. So you divide this meter 1,000 times into smaller pieces, so you will have a grains of sand. And then if you divide it into, into one million pieces, you will get the size of a red blood cells. So your blood is red because there are red blood cells in it. So this will be the size. And now if you think about the nanometer, it's actually, oops. <laughs> now I lost my, you know, my, my kind of dramatic, <laughs> Actually, this is like a stand-up comedian, and then in the middle of the joke, your slide presenter doesn't work. In any case, it's important that you remember that nanometer is still 1,000 times smaller than the red blood cell. So it's very, very small. So one, something that is of a nanometer size will enter your cell quite easily. So just remember that. And lots of the molecules that we will see today are even smaller than one nanometer. So now, if you would like to see these structures, if you, if you would like to see the real structure of a butterfly, you have to use the microscope. And this was the microscope that Hooke had. He designed it. He was, this is the first optical microscope in 17th century. And he used this to look at a leaf and to look at the water and describe many beautiful things. And today, we have this. So this is the electron microscope. So we made some advances. And so we can use this electron microscope to basically see the things which we could never see with the optical microscope. And that's why we can explain this structural color today as well. And so I come back to Cambridge, because Cambridge is the place where many things happen. And so there was a strange berry in Cambridge in 2012. It still is in the Botanic Garden. And what was interesting about this berry is that the specimen was from 70s, and in 2012, it still looked the same as when they got it from Africa. So this is a plant, Folia condensata from, and it's called marble berry. It's, you can find it in Africa, and it looks like this. So it has this beautiful blue color, very metallic. So the guys were thinking, because this was the time when structural colors were really coming out, <laughs> people were exploring them. And the guys who are still, Sylvia is still working here, they thought, let's have a look. What gives the color to this berry? Because it's indestructible. They, in the meanwhile, they found also in a museum in Kenya uh, a berry that is like 150 uh, years old and it still looks the same. And they used the microscopes and their experience to check what is happening and they found that cellulose, you know, the stuff that the paper is made of, which makes up this plant and the berry, is structured so nicely on the nanoscale that again reflects only the light of a particular wavelength. And this was really cool. Again, this plant doesn't have a pigment. So it will probably look like this in 1,000 years as well. It's not going to destroy it, get destroyed because the structure is still intact. And so, in the meanwhile, this is considered the most intense color in nature until somebody else comes and finds another berry and the bug or the bug that has even more intense. And all of these developments that I showed you, so we went from the first synthetic dye, which was found totally by chance and by pure persistence or desperation uh, to the structural colors that were already imagined a little bit by Hook and hinted by Isaac Newton, but of course they didn't have a tools and timing was not right. For them to see, we went to this berry and to the structural colors. And all of this wouldn't be possible if we didn't have one event happening in 1986. 
And this was the event that we, we uh, note as the birth of nanotechnology, and this was discovery of fullerene. So fullerene is a tiny molecule. It's made of 60 carbon atoms. So carbon is element that builds us, and it's a very important element for life and for our part of the universe as well. And this carbon, this, this fullerene has 60 of them, packed in a, such a symmetric structure. So sometimes people call it like a football structure. And at that time, just before 1986, when this was published, there were several guys working in an entirely different topic. So Harold Crotto was trying to explore what happens in the presence of a big stars. So he was interested in astrochemistry. Um, Richard Smalley, he was designing instruments where you can heat molecules to the huge temperatures and then you can explore what actually happens to them. Sometimes we do that as well, we just destroy them and look what happens. And so they teamed up because they thought if one has an instrument that can heat up the things and another one is exploring the compounds that are produced when you have high temperatures, maybe we can team up and stimulate what happens in the vicinity of really hot stars. And so they put the graphite, you know, the thing that you have in the pencils into this machine and every single time they got one precise, among other signals, they got one signal that was telling them we have something very symmetrical. And this symmetrical molecule has 60 atoms. So of course, they thought that doesn't make any sense. There is nothing so big in nature that would contain 60 carbons. How is that possible? So they went on and optimized and changed the instrument and did it again, probably hundreds of times, and the result was always there. So they decided, okay, so this is real. We have to find out what is it. And they couldn't. So they drew all possible structures and they didn't know. So Smalley used to say in his talks that they were so obsessed with this idea that every single minute would spend just thinking what could that be. And then they just decided, okay, we need a little break. And he went home and after talking to Croto and he was drawing this and he remembered what Croto told him. Croto was really enthusiast for uh, organic chemistry, for all kinds of chemistries, but also for art and architecture. And they were talking about different things and there was one architect that was actually working on these dome structures. Um, and he designed lots of these very symmetrical structures made of hexagons and pentagons. And so at the same time when Smalley and Croto were thinking about this and one went home, it just dawned onto them, maybe it's a very simple structure, very symmetrical structure where you combine hexagons and pentagons together in the form of the ball, everything fits, it's very symmetrical and you can pack nicely 60 carbons onto it. And this was a solution. And this is, then they went on and they digged into the papers of uh, uh, Buckminster Fuller, who was the architect that worked on these structures and they found these beautiful drawings that you can still see in the archives of how he imagined these domes to look like, and he actually built some of the domes. He also predicted how carbon nanotubes will look like, or maybe he didn't predict because he didn't predict that stuff, but he, people have drawn the information and inspiration from some of his purely architectural studies of a matter and stability of the matter. So they published this, nobody believed him, them for a few years, and then suddenly other people managed to repeat some of the experiments and fullerene was finally accepted as the third allotropic form of carbon. That means that you have a carbon that can have different forms. One is diamond, we all like diamond. Uh, another one is graphite, we all like graphite because it's also electrically conductive and it can be very useful for writing and other things. And then you have the third form which is Buckminster fullerene. So there are also some reports that always add additional <laughs> molecules, uh, additional forms which were newly dis discovered, but this is actually the accepted form. So something that really didn't make sense at the beginning, but it was repeatedly there, and the guys that were working on it didn't want to give up. 
Because, you know, the easiest thing when you get something that doesn't make sense is maybe just to say, Ooh, let me do something else. You know, I'll get back to it later. And then you forget and you don't. So there is this persistence, there is this uh, curiosity. Uh, you want to know what actually happens. So this is the fullerene and the birth of nanotechnology. And this was really funny because fullerene is a huge molecule. It has 60 atoms. It's very symmetrical. And lots of people really disputed that this can exist. And this was already mid-80s, where you would expect that people will know better. Because there was another guy, Hermann Staudinger, a famous German chemist. He was involved in probably every single field of organic chemistry. I have no idea how. Um, but in the 1920s, he presented his work on one of the conferences, and he introduced the concept of macromolecules. Because till then, people have believed that you can only have small molecules. You can ha not have something that has lots of atoms in it. And so he said, no, 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 I'm working on rubber. And he worked on natural rubber. And every single time when he did his experiments, his experiments have shown him that he has big molecules in this rubber. And another Nobel Prize winner at that time, a huge authority, wrote him this letter saying very politely that he should maybe purify his product because molecules with a bigger molecular weight cannot exist. And most probably his product is just dirty. Um, of course, this was not the case because Hermann Staudinger actually gave, not gave birth, but I think he formalized the field of polymers. And if you look around you, if you look at the labels on your clothes, you will definitely have a little bit of a polymer. If you drive home later, depending on what kind of car you have, you probably have around 100 kilos of polymers in your car. And you know, people didn't believe that they can exist at the beginning of 20th century. So development is there. So Staudinger worked on the natural rubber, which you can, uh, which, uh, you can find in nature. But of course, today we also have lots of synthetic polymers, the polymers which are man-made, like, for example, polyethylene, which was the most widely used polymer for a long time. And when you think about polymers, you, of course, know that they have changed the way we live, but they also changed the way we see the environment. You know, the waste that we are producing by using the polymer is going to be a very pressing issue in the future as well. So, you know, there are all kinds of implications with a very fast development. But of course, polymers have been very important for uh, technological, industrial, civilizational development, if you want. And also this polymer, which is made of these molecules, which are sugars, and this is called chitin. And this polymer is responsible for the color of your butterflies. So, this is kind of tying in. So this polymer makes these Christmas trees in the butterfly wings that are reflecting this blue light that you can see. So polymers, they can be natural or they can be man-made, but they definitely exist. And there was a really funny story with one of the polymers that you probably have in your kitchen. And uh, this was happening beginning of 20th century, and there was a guy who actually worked on finding new gases for refrigerators. So at that time, uh, refrigerating was done with gases that contained fluorine. Today, these kind of gases are banned because we realized in the meanwhile that they are quite bad for ozone. But at that time, he was trying to find these new gases that you can use in the refrigerator. And so they would have this gas in the gas bottle and they would cool it down. And so one day he just left with his student, they left this gas bottle, and then they realized that there's something wrong in the bottle, there is nothing, there is no gas in it. And he just didn't leave it like this. He actually cut the gas bottle, brave man, I wouldn't cut anything. And then he found that there is a white powder formed in this gas bottle. So there was no gas any longer, but there was a white powder. At first they thought maybe gas leaked, so this was really strange. And this white powder, he could say, he could just say, okay, bad luck, I don't have time to investigate this because I'm pressed to find this refrigerating gas. No, but he said, oof, 
that's strange. I want to see what is that good for. And then he found that this is really non-sticky substance. Like you can't stick anything to it. And you can really melt it and you can make really nice sheets of it. And we know it today as a Teflon. So, you know, like a, in the pans. And of course, Teflon is one of the three most non-sticky substances that we know today. And it's not only used for pans and dishes, it's also used in computer cables and electrical cables as well. So it, it has been a very important material, but it was found purely in plants. And so when I, when I was preparing this, of course, I had lots of examples of polymers and I thought, my God, in polymer chemistry, everything happened by chance, it seems. Everybody was just throwing things around, overheating them, putting strange chemicals where they should not be, and then they got some polymers, you know. So it was uh, interesting for me personally. But when we think about this, all of these macromolecules, so you have something which is nanotechnologically very important, and then you have all of these polymers, you have natural polymers like cellulose in your paper or in plants, you think, what is the mother of all macromolecules? And uh, the mother of all macromolecules is probably DNA. Because this is also a macromolecule. It's made of small elements which are joined together to form a long, long chain of uh, uh, which we call a DNA. And it has this kind of helical, very famous helical structure. And DNA is a carrier of our own information. So we carry genetic information written in the code within this DNA. So when you hear speaking about genes or chromosomes, these, these are all made of DNA. What is interesting is that humans have around three billion base pairs in each cell. And so you think, okay, so three billion base pairs, if you would stretch them, they would be around three meters. So how do I pack three meters of DNA in the single cell? which is probably really small because we have many of them. So I can just tell you without going into kind of molecular biology that DNA has a really interesting properties and this structure as well. So DNA can be really packed in a very, very small particle-like uh, um, structures which will then be packed within the DNA. But this is not why DNA is here. It's here because the whole story of finding out the structure of this mother of micromolecules was close to a thriller. So there was a really, there were a little bit of villains, there were people who just found themselves on the crime scene by chance, but you know that they are somehow involved. There were wrong suspects, and then there was finally a real story. So people, were, people knew for a while at the beginning of 20th century that there is a molecule in our cell that is responsible for our uh, for transfer of genetic material. So we knew that. So there were lots of prominent chemists that were involved in deciphering the structure of this molecule. And one of them was Linus Pauling, who is one of the greatest chemists that we know of, who, was, uh, who discovered many different things, won two Nobel Prizes, and he was also interested in solving the structure of a DNA. But he proposed triple helix. So instead of having two strands that are going in a helix, he proposed triple helix, he made some other mistakes. But he was really eager to publish and he didn't have lots of good data. So he published this wrong uh, structure. But there were also guys in Cambridge that were interested basically in the other type of nucleic acid, RNA. Um, and they were studying it, but they were also interested to see if they can maybe find out what is happening with this structure of DNA and why is it so difficult to decipher it. And they got this. They got this photo which is called a photo 51, like area 51. It's a photo made by Rosalind Franklin who was a crystallographer and who was studying this material, this nucleic acids. And she got a really beautiful photo, uh, x-ray photo from which you could decipher the structure. And taking into account the information that other sciences were collecting, and by chance, uh, uh, Watson and Crick were going to the seminar where Rosalind Franklin was speaking and presenting a little bit of a work 
we always do that in science. We have a group meetings and then we do, we show all the things that worked and all the things that didn't work and discuss them. And they ended up going to the seminar of Rosalind Franklin's boss where this was also shown. And after a discussion in doubt of them, they knew already a little bit about nucleic acid and after a discussion, after having, having this photo, they realized that the structure probably looks like this, looks like a double helix. Unfortunately, Rosalind Franklin have never been, has never been acknowledged for that until end of 60s, when I think Crick first time said that they wouldn't have done this if Rosalind Franklin didn't give them this photo 51. But it was too late because she died quite early, so she didn't get a Nobel Prize. But this is also one thing where, you know, you realize somebody has published something and when Linus Pauling published his triple helix, there were lots of scientists who said, but that doesn't fit, that doesn't make any sense. We have to find a structure. We should not just accept it because the famous chemist has told us we need to accept it until every single piece fits. And I think this is important to remember in our lives as well as in science that sometimes you would like the things to work and to be as you want them, but they're just not like this. So you have to accept them and find the right way. So this was an interesting discovery. So 59 years later after the discovery of DNA, we have this new technology, which I'm not going to go into detail. It's called CRISPR-Cas9 technology, where you can use some molecular tools to cut out the genes in the genome and replace them with another gene. And so this is really interesting development. And if you think that there are only 60 years that have passed between the discovery of a DNA structure and these developments in genetics, um, this is something really remarkable. And the funny thing is that we discovered this kind of tools because one of the scientists was really interesting to see how bacteria fight the flu. Because you know, you wouldn't believe that bacteria have their own viruses as well that attack them. So she was really interested in knowing how do bacteria defend themselves from viruses. And then she discovered that there are some molecular tools that bacteria are using to cut the DNA out of the virus and then replace it. And you could imagine that this kind of technology is particularly attractive because we all would like to be healthy. We would like to live maybe longer. Even if we don't live longer, we would like to have healthier life. So this kind of genetic technology could actually help us to do that. And lots of things, lots of discoveries in chemistry were motivated by finding the next cure, finding something that is going to help us to live longer and be healthier. And that's really funny, but there is also one particular case that is probably the well-known, and you will uh, know it as well, uh, where one discovery on one drug changed really the way how we live. And it was discovered purely by chance. And it was discovered in 1928 by Alexander Fleming and his, in his untidy lab. If he was just a little bit more tidy, probably he wouldn't discover the penicillin. But he went for holidays and he was exploring this uh, uh, bacteria. So he had lots of small plates where he would grow this bacteria. And then he went for holidays and he left that in uh, the hospital where he worked. And when he came back, he saw that there is a mold growing on this plate. And this mold was coming actually from the floor below because there was a group working on mold downstairs and it was August so you know the windows are open and he cleverly noticed he was of course upset because you know at that time you would grow these colonies you would preserve them you would explore them and then he saw wait a minute around these molds the bacteria are not growing so he rightly asked himself why if he didn't if he just threw it he would probably not discover the penicillin at that time Funnily enough, he couldn't isolate penicillin in high amounts, so he has given up. It, the whole five years after publishing his work, he didn't do anything much with the penicillin, actually. But there was one guy in Australia that did, and in 1939, he developed, he used another mold, 
uh, of another strain that produced a little bit more penicillin. And at that time, this was just before the Second World War. So you didn't have many resources to build huge reactors. So he built the reactors of milk churn, you know, the ones that you use to make cheese, and bathtubs and bookshelves. So this was the first reactor to make penicillin, guys. Uh, but they made it in a huge amount as well. And then there was this lady. Oh, I keep on pressing the wrong button. And then there was this lady, Margaret Hutchinson Russo, chemical engineer. You wouldn't find, it find her often in the books if you don't look carefully. Now a little bit more often. In 1944, he, she actually designed first factory that made penicillin in huge amounts. So antibiotics were, of course, very important, particularly in the Second World War, because they prevented infection. And they saved millions of millions of uh, people. And today we do have an issue of antibiotic resistance, but antibiotics are still a very important class of drugs. And many drugs actually are extracted from natural sources. So for example, you have kinin, which is anti-malaria drug, still very effective, uh, which is from Jehona tree. Then you have aspirin, which people have been, they will chew the bark, willow bark, for centuries before the aspirin was sold by Bayer. So then you have morphine, which was in Mesopotamia, um, called, uh, like, it was, it, it stems from poppy, so the people in Mesopotamia will chew it. So poppy was called the joy plant with a reason, because morphine actually changed the way we perceived medicine. Before morphine being used in surgeries, people would use alcohol to numb the patient. Not a very good idea to pour down lots of alcohol to the patient when you need to operate. Or they would just do the operations without any kind of pain uh, uh, killers or, or such a compound. So having morphine and having ways to produce morphine in large amounts, it was really something that changed the medicine as well. And then Felix Hoffman, who was one of the founders of Bayer, he was experimenting with morphine because he wanted to make codeine. Codeine is also sometimes used in the cough syrups. It's not so potent also as a morphine. But then he threw onto the chemicals onto the morphine and he made this. Yeah, oops, he made heroin which is several times more potent than the morphine. It was put on the market as a drug that will, that will change your life forever. And it was sold as asthma uh, treatment. It was in cough syrups. It was prescribed to housewives. Unfortunately, there was a really demographic change. Before, at the beginning of 20th century, it was mainly young women that were addicted to heroin, unlike Later on, there were lots of young men. So for a while, heroin was totally legally sold and, uh, uh, as a drug until doctors noticed that there is lots of addictions stemming from, and it was eventually banned. Um, and it was also, it, funnily, it got named because the workers that were producing heroin in the company, they started feeling heroic after inhaling the cocaine. I mean, you would make this, and then you would inhale it, and then you were suddenly heroic, so they call it heroin. So that's the story. But one molecule, and I will soon <laughs> finish, uh, one molecule that binds all of these uh, uh, drugs and, and tells us the story how everything started, how this synthetic chemistry started. So we can extract drugs from nature, but then we want to make them more potent. We want to also make different drugs. But there is one molecule that was responsible for this kind of development. And this is this very modest molecule, which is called urea. So if you go home after this and you take a shower, the chances are that you will have urea in your shower gel, if it's a good shower gel. So urea is something that we use very commonly in our products. But it was also important because it marked the beginning of synthetic organic chemistry. So this guy, Friedrich Wöhler, at the beginning of 19th century, you know, until that moment that Friedrich Wöhler came to the stage, people believed that if you have molecules which are present in living creatures, or for example, um, something that we have in our body, 
these molecules cannot be made from inorganic substances, but rather these molecules can be made only if there is a special force that is present that gives the soul to these molecules. And they would call it vis vitalis. And this whole movement was called vitalism. So you basically couldn't do organic synthesis if you didn't have the access to this force. So you can imagine that was pretty hard then. Um, but he said, look guys, that doesn't make any sense. Why couldn't I make a molecule that is present in our, our body that is you know, kind of uh, uh, in the living creatures from inorganic substances? And urea is of course excreted in urine. It's something how our body basically removes some of the dangerous nitrogen that can be produced in body. So he actually made it from inorganic ammonia salt. And he has shown that you don't need vitalism, that you don't need special force to make compounds. So he actually opened the way to all of these curious chemists who said, okay, I don't need to have special forces to make something. I mean, sometimes I would like to tell my students, guys, special forces, uh, if you want to do this. And finally, I will just finish with one, with two molecules. So after we had this organic chemistry really uh, getting wings and lots of people entering, and end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, there were all kinds of discoveries coming out. But there were also several molecules that have changed our civilization, the way we live tremendously. And there is one synthetic drug that has changed pharmaceutical industry tremendously. And this is thalidomide. This molecule was sold as um, anti-nucea compound in 50s, also for morning sicknesses. And it was really efficient until one of the doctors in Germany noticed that there are lots of birth defects appearing and there are lots of stillborns uh, uh, you know, coming to life, particularly there where women were getting this drug. And he observed that so often that he said, guys, this, there is something not really good about this drug. And nobody really believed him. And in the interest of company was also that this drug is sold. But he was very persistent. And he convinced the scientists and also the company that there is something happening with this drug. And indeed, it does, because if you look at this drug, this structure, it can have two different orientations in space. It's almost like a left and the right hand. So, you know, it, it's simply differently oriented. And so, one type of the molecule can bind to a particular proteins that are arresting the growth of fetus. The other one is not so dangerous. So, but the problem was in drug, you had both. And so when this was discovered, scientists realized, wow, not only we need to take care of a molecular structure, we need to take care of orientation of these molecules as well. And this then uh, changed the way how drugs are made. So today we have special purification methods, but it also changed the way how the clinical trials are done. So today you would sometimes need seven, eight, even 10 years for a drug to come to the market because it needs to be explored. So this was one of the beginnings where this chirality, this orientation of molecule actually started playing a big role. And then of course we realized this chirality, this orientation plays tremendously big role in biochemistry as well. So it, it is very, very important. But this was basically beginning and this was in 50s. So here, just to remember a little bit. And then, of course, the pesticide that changed the world as well, and it changed the environmental policies, is still considered a little bit controversial, and this is DDT, that, which was actually made in 1874. In 19, beginning of, of 1930s, it was discovered to be a very potent insecticide and pesticide, and then very efficient in destroying mosquito, particularly mosquitoes that are uh, transferring malaria. So thanks to the DDT, malaria was eradicated from Europe. So for a while, even till beginning of 40s, you would have in certain parts of southern Germany still malaria, and in Balkans even till 60s. And DDT was very efficient. But then again, in the areas where DDT was used, in the States, 
uh, certain scientists have noticed that this happens with the eggs of the birds. So the bird eggshells will become so soft that the chicks could not be hatched. And then they noticed that only in the areas where you would use these insecticides, and then the birds would feed onto the insects that will be treated with DDT or just eat the grass, which would be sprayed with DDT, this would happen. And maybe some of you would know this book by Rachel Carson, which was written in the beginning of 60s. This was probably a book that marked the beginnings of environmental movement and environmental policy decisions. Because after this and after the campaigning, DDT was banned. However, it's still allowed to be used in some of the developing countries because it is a very effective insecticide. Um, it got a kind of revival at the end of 70s, beginning of 80s, but people are now realizing that maybe there should be another way how we will deal with mosquitoes, particularly those that are carrying diseases. So this is also one of the man-made molecules that has been really impacting the way we live. And then we have this molecule. I will just start, uh, finish with, I'm continuously looking at the watch because I still want to have a discussion with you. So I don't want to be the one that talks all the time. And I will finish with this because I thought there will probably be lots of young audience here that would uh, like to have something explosive. And I can't do any experiments here, but I can tell you about this molecule and it's a nitroglycerin which changed the way how the industry developed, but it also changed in many ways the history because it changed the way how we make weapons. Uh, particularly in the First World War, dynamite has been responsible for a tremendous loss of life. So this is one example where chemistry can show their bo its both faces. On one way, nitroglycerin was very important for industrialization. It helped us to mine easier. It helped us to, bridge, to build bridges because suddenly you had a molecule that would be an explosive and you could destroy, uh, you can make tunnels, you can build bridges, you can do mining. And the interesting thing is how Alfred Nobel found it. He had this uh, uh, factory where he was making nitroglycerin. And nitroglycerin is a liquid. So it's very unstable. So if you shake it even a little bit, it will just explode. So he had lots of accidents in his factory and he also lost his young brother to one of these explosions. So he was really, really desperate to find a way how to stabilize this liquid. And so he was mixing it with many different things. And he was so desperate that he went to the uh, shore of Elbe River in Germany where his factory was and he took some of the sand. He thought, I tried everything, I might just try it with the sand. And he realized that nitroglycerin is stabilized by this sand. In this sand, you had tiny parts of shells of certain microorganisms that have silicium, is one of the metals they like to have in their shells, and so this stabilized nitroglycerin, and so he could make dynamite. Suddenly you could transport this explosive all over Europe, you can transport it in Asia. You could store it safely. You could make weapons that you could sell as well. So in many ways, this one thing of desperation and, and just taking these pieces of sand from the river shore has changed the way we, we actually make lots of things today and also enabled the award of Nobel Prizes because uh, Nobel, of course, realized that his product can be very useful, but it can also have uh, um, bad consequences and he decided to put lots of money from his company in foundation from which you pay for Nobel Prizes today. Funnily enough, funny story, he suffered from angina, from these um, uh, problems with the heart um, and then he went to Paris in 1890 and the doctors gave him a small amount of a liquid and this was nitroglycerin. They called it differently in Paris but the doctors in France used to use this nitroglycerin to cause the vein dilation, to enable the blood to circulate a little bit easier. So actually you could still use nitroglycerin, of course, in a very small amount to do this as well. So he thought that this is very ironic. I didn't even know that this exists, that you are using you know, nitroglycerin 
for that. And I will, I will end there with this. Um, conclusion, there were lots of things I didn't talk about. Things that were found out by pure chance or things that where people said this doesn't make any sense. For example, radioactivity, cornflakes, Velcro, LSD as well. Um, vitamin Bs, different kinds as well, purely found by chance. And you know, when I was thinking about this, what helps you to find, to make new discoveries, which hopefully my students are going to forget now? Untidy labs. I found that among all of these discoveries that I was reading about, that I was teaching and I was learning about, there was always an untidy lab related to them. Breaking things, you throw something, something breaks, falls onto something else, and suddenly you see white powder forming and you realize this is your next thing, next polymer, next drug. Spilling things helps as well. Forgetting them in the fume hoods or in the lab helps as well, as we saw with uh, um, penicillin, but also it helps if you listen. So vaccination. It, was, it just came to life because a doctor that was working on them listened to some of the patients and what they are saying. Not letting go, persistence, very important. You get a bad result, you just need to persist and you need to believe. And you always need to ask, but why? And this is very helpful. And so I recommend to everybody, particularly some future scientists, always ask why. Because if you ask, there is probably going to be an answer to that as well. And it will be quite cool if you are the first one to find it. Okay, so thank you for listening to me. We have a little bit of time for questions, I think. Yeah? Thank you. I'll just put this here just for fun. So this is this drawing that was found in Spain. It looks like a rocket. I turned it around because it looks like a rocket. So. Okay, any questions or comments, or maybe questions for me? Yes, gentlemen. Uh, just a minute, we need a microphone. Out of all the scientists that you talked about today, which like, team of physicists do you want to be working with? Uh, Hermann Staudinger, you know, the guy that was with micro Micromolecules, because I heard and read and, uh, about him, and he seemed to have an incredible sense of humor and persistence and enthusiasm. He, nobody believed him when he said that they are macromolecules. So he said, I'm going to prove it. So I'm going to go in lab and I'll give you all the data. And you still don't believe me? I'm just going to be so passionate about it that you will believe me. So actually, there is a story that when he would go to the conference, he would manage to turn like 40 people on his side. So like nobody would believe him and he will get out and he will have for like 40% of new PhD students that were on his side. I think he had the imagination. He worked in entirely new field that nobody believed in and he switched his field quite often. And so with the knowledge from the previous field, he could actually advance, uh, advance another one. And apparently he was not untidy. He was very German. <laughs> yeah. So probably Hermann Staudinger. Okay, any more? Yes, the lady up there. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that so many of them were found by chance, but what proportion of what would you say were really fantastic discoveries were by chance and what were by design? Uh, well, well, most of them, so the ones that I've showed you here, 19% were actually by chance. However, when we talk about the chance, it's always, and several scientists said that already, the chance is just an illusion. So you need to have a prepared mind. So in order to notice this chance, you already need to be tuned a little bit, primed a little bit. Maybe you've seen, or you just have to be young enough. <laughs> like, like Perkin, that you just think, oh, I'm just going to do something, you know, here. But then again, Perkin, who developed this artificial dye, he had Van Hoffman, who was a famous chemist, um, so he could ask him for advice. And so Van Hoffman will tell him, oh my God, this is cool. And so Perkin made a company 
and he got rich, retired when he was 36 uh, from this purple dye and continued uh, working as a scientist, just retired. So 90% by chance, the ones, the examples which are here and some that I named which I, we didn't talk about. So yeah, but you have to listen and have a little bit of a detective eye to basically recognize when something important. I overdo it. I really need to share this with you, although some of my students are here in the, <laughs> um, in the hall. I sometimes overdo it because I was reading about the chance and the things and I, I always wanted to be a detective. So if there is anything that is a little bit unusual, I will put my students and I will tell them purify it. So I just recently, there was one compound that we are making um, which can be very useful for catalysis. And so the students show me, and he's here. So students show me this little slide that we used with a collar, and there was a blue collar. And I told him, you need to investigate this. But he said, this is rubbish. But it's blue, you need to investigate it. The poor guy, I think I gave him a little bit more work. It's probably not going to be useful, so, but I overdo it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so thank you very much. If you have any questions, feel free to write to me. I also have some booklets, some coloring books some, uh, and books with experiments you can do in your kitchen. So particularly for future scientists, you can have them um, and use them and observe. Okay, thank you very much.